I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, July 6th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we talk with one advocate hoping to end the war on drugs in Mississippi. Then a look at the ties that bind two Mississippi music legends. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A special chancellor has denied an attempt to block Mississippi's 2007 anti-abortion trigger law and six-week abortion ban. MPB's Kobe Vance reports plaintiffs requested the law be delayed based on a 1998 state Supreme Court case. The law that will ban nearly all abortions in Mississippi goes into effect this Thursday, despite a final attempt to block it in the Hines County Chancery Court. The request for injunctive relief was denied by Judge Deborah Halford, special chancellor over the case between the Jackson Women's Health Organization and the state of Mississippi. Rob McDuff is an attorney with the Mississippi Center for Justice. Mississippi Supreme Court has made it clear that it interprets its constitution independent of what the U.S. Supreme Court does. And the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court in Dobbs overruled 50 years of precedent and took away a right that had been acknowledged doesn't mean the Mississippi Supreme Court has to do the same thing under the Mississippi Constitution. McDuff argues that the 1998 pro-life v. Fordyce case stands on its own, independent of rulings by the United States Supreme Court. But representation for the state disagrees. Solicitor General Scott Stewart with the Attorney General's office says that the state-level decision was made under the precedent set by Roe v. Wade and was negated by the High Court's recent decision. In the past two weeks, uh, the state of the law has changed dramatically, and the court needs to decide this motion based on the law as it now stands. You know, if this suit were filed a month ago, things would be very different. The, the plaintiffs would have a much different claim. And that's because two weeks ago, there was a Roe versus Wade, there was a Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and there was a pro-choice Mississippi versus Fordyce. That's no longer true. In a statement following the judge's ruling, McDuff says they are reviewing the decision and are considering their options. Kobe Vance, MPB News. Coming up, we talk with one advocate hoping to end the war on drugs in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi has long imposed some of the country's most severe penalties for drug crimes. One Jackson-based organization says it's not working. Brett Montague is with End It For Good, which focuses on treating, not punishing drug abusers. He tells us that requires working across multiple groups of stakeholders. We are not saying that there's not a place for law enforcement in, in our society. I want to be crystal clear about that. We appreciate our law enforcement officers, and we need them. And by the way, we have them at the table. We work with everybody from uh, soccer moms to people in recovery uh, to business leaders, legislators, faith leaders, and law enforcement. And we believe that law enforcement also has a stake in ending the war on drugs. We have been at this for uh, over 100 years, 100 and, it's been 107 years now, um, going on 108 since the Harrison Narcotics Act, Act was passed in 1914. Um, it, we have been at this for 100 years, uh, um, repeatedly just, you know, uh, using these punitive, one-size-fits-all criminal measures. Uh, and the war on drugs was launched on a lofty proposition that, you know, if we prohibited drugs, prohibition would be a deterrent. Therefore, people would quit using. Therefore, demand would go down and poof, the supply would be eradicated from the world. That has not happened. Uh, it's been counterproductive, and it's made things um, on, only worse. Um, and frankly, if we end the drug war, you know, it will, it will divert resources uh, to actually solving violent crimes. And families of real victims that are going without justice will get the justice they need. Uh, law enforcement will not, you know, you know, uh, their frustration will go down because they see the same people in this perpetual drug war coming in and out of the system. Would you say that the way things are fuels the underground black market? Oh, 100 percent. So uh, so recently you had Lieutenant Kevin Levine, uh, you know, who's a who's a law enforcement officer and a criminal justice professor at Jackson State. Uh, on on your show for a two-part series and you know he's somebody that walks and works with us as as well Um, as I said earlier law enforcement does have a stake in this I was recently on a phone call too with a an unnamed mayor in the South Mississippi area um, about this issue and he was telling me you know he didn't know where he stood on this issue you know and 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 as he said that he said you see Brett the thing is is most mayors uh, most of the problem with uh, related to the drug war that mayors deal with is the violence from the underground market. And, and when he said that, I just sat in silence and let it sit. And then he, and then he said, oh, well, he said, maybe that's, that's a reason to support legalization. And, and I, said, I said, you said it, sir, not me, um, because that is, that is the truth. By, by continuing uh, you know, support and implementation of prohibition across the board, we are not weakening gangs and cartels. We are funding them by providing them with the keys to a half a trillion dollar industry to fight over on our streets. And, and, and you see, 
you know, uh, gangs and cartels, they don't have courtrooms to settle their disputes. So where do they have to go to settle their disputes? They have nowhere to go but on the streets. And if they want to gain market share, you know, or maintain theirs in their territory or gain it in a new territory, the only way that they can gain market share is through fear and violence. So, so let me ask you seeing, this. You know, death from the drugs themselves, but on the supply side, we are seeing terrible death and human carnage. So are you saying that illegal drugs should be legal? And am I saying that an illegal drug should be legal? Yes. Yes. Yes, I am. I'm saying that it should be that it should be legally regulated. We're talking about heroin, heroin, um, cocaine, crack. Yeah. And in 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 terms of that, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not going to get in 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 the weeds on, you know, uh, certain provisions of, of legislation and and, you know, what that. Uh, ultimately would look like like that's that's not a decision that brett montague that you know or end it for good for good needs to make itself that's why we we invite so many stakeholders to the table to have these conversations and it's an important conversation to have to determine what the best route to go is you know is it is it the prescription route is it the dispensary route what route is that um you know but we this this we are at an inflection point in our society, and there's a reckoning coming. There are now there are now 37 states, including Mississippi, that have at least passed medical marijuana and have legal cannabis in in one shape or form, whether it's adult use or medical. The train has left the station, and and we all know where this is where this is going. So you know it's it's time that we all start having a frank, open. Um, you know, respectful dialogue around this. Where is it um, going? Um, so, um, you know, the the script is still unwritten on that, I, and and I, I don't have have a magic wand. Um, you know, the first the first frontier, though, of course, you, uh, is marijuana legalization. Uh, Nineteen states at this point have uh, passed recreational or what we call adult use marijuana. Thirty-seven states have passed at least at least medical. Um, currently, uh, I was just so I was just in D.C. Uh, last week. Um, so, end it for good is also part of a national coalition, a national conservative coalition uh, called the Cannabis Freedom Alliance. And the Cannabis Freedom Alliance is is a, a coalition made up of various organizations from around the country um, that seek an end to the federal prohibition uh, and criminalization of cannabis in a way that optimizes safety and quality control and allows for free market enterprise. And uh, we were there to support a specific piece of legislation that has been authored by um, uh, Representative Nancy Mace, who is a congresswoman from the 1st District of South Carolina, U.S. congresswoman, uh, and she, uh, she's the author of the State's Reform Act. The State's Reform Act is an, a, a piece of federal legislation that uh, that will remove marijuana from being a Schedule One drug, which it is now. It's a Schedule One drug sitting next to harder drugs like like heroin and LSD. Um, it will remove it from being a Schedule One drug and federally decriminalize and decriminalize it, allowing uh, states uh, to exercise their individual powers. Uh, over how they want to handle marijuana going forward. 
Coming up, a look at the ties that bind two Mississippi music legends. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Florence native Ben Wynn will be speaking at the two Mississippi museums today about his book, In Tune, Charlie Patton, Jimmy Rogers, and the Roots of American Music. He tells us he's eager to share what his research has unveiled about the connections between the two Southern musical trailblazers. Basically, what I was trying to accomplish uh, with the book was uh, to show uh, the similarities that early blues music and early country music, uh, the similarities, the things that they had uh, in common, and um, kind of using those two guys, Jimmy Rogers and Charlie Patton, as a vehicle for that. Both were from Mississippi. Why did you pick these two men? Well, I picked them because uh, their chronologies of fit. They were uh, active around the same time. And um, although I live in Georgia now, I'm a native Mississippian, so I'm always interested in Mississippi subjects. And the fact that they were both from Mississippi played into that. And, you know, Patton is a great example of an early blues man. And Rogers, of course, same thing for uh, the country music. What stands out about them to you? And what do you want to get across in this book? Well, uh, what I was trying to get across is that while country music uh, traditionally is considered by some kind of, quote, uh, white uh, music and the blues music comes out of the, the African-American uh, tradition. And uh, you know, that music, that early country and early blues music, it was created in a segregated society, yet a lot of the early country music and the blues music played off each other. Now, the blues gave more to country than country gave to blues. But there was a lot of interaction uh, as far as the music goes, although, you know, there were, that was all taking place in this rigidly segregated society with all this other kind of nastiness in play. So you're talking about 1920s and 1930s. How did the blues contribute to country music and vice versa? Well, just by uh, um, an exchange of uh, music and uh, words and melodies between uh, musicians, African-American musicians and, and uh, white musicians interact with one another. Jimmy Rogers very famously uh, interacted with the African-American musicians when he was, he was young. And then after recorded music, uh, after you get recorded music, of course, uh, records circulated. So um, you could hear uh, different artists by uh, buying the record. But it's just basically the, the um, propagation of the, the music itself. And it, 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 whether it's blues or the early country music, it kind of uh, springs. Uh, there's a lot of things in common. It springs from a, a common well, a well in some ways. Not always, of course, but some ways. Is it because they both speak from their experience and usually their experience is on the sad side. You know, my woman left me. 
um, right. you know, or my dog died or whatever it is, but it's, <laughs> there's that sadness in it, that, that human struggle sound in it, in the lyrics. Uh, I, I could not have put it better myself. You just put it perfectly. Uh, uh, a lot of that blues music and, and uh, country music, even though uh, it seems, uh, again, it's operating in a racially segregated society. I mean, it springs from uh, poverty. It, it springs from uh, a lot of people who feel trapped in their existence, who a lot of people who don't uh, feel that they have any chance of upward uh, mobility. Uh, that's why there's so many train songs in both blues and uh, country music, because everybody you know, early on during that period, they wrote about trains because uh, everybody was looking to escape. The trains symbolized escape, and they're going to, you know, somewhere, uh, some abstract place where things were better. Uh, but also, uh, a lot of the music is kind of sad, but some of it is also uh, celebratory. I mean, uh, uh, some of it is used as a means of positive uh, expression. But yeah, because of the sort of the socioeconomic times of that period, uh, the African-American community especially, of course, uh, uh, the, the music, there were some kind of darker themes in the, in the music. When you think about country music today, there still are not a lot of African-Americans in that genre. There are some, but not a lot. Um, and blues music there aren't a lot of white singers in that genre? I mean, that's a complicated question, but basically that blues music sprang from the African-American community and and it continues to do so. And that tradition is still alive and the country music, uh, same, same kind of thing. Some of the music has been politicized and there's all kinds of different factors that, that play into that. But you, it, that's kind of what I was trying to get across in the book. The early, the early stuff. Uh, I mean, even though you've got a segregated society, there's still a lot in common. Although on the surface, it, it doesn't seem that way sometimes, especially in the current, you know, the current stuff where it's also commercial. Well, does that mean that African Americans should mostly sing the blues and that white folks should mostly sing country? No, no. I think people should be free to sing whatever they want to. What stops uh, more it, crossover? What's stopping the crossover more? There are racial uh, elements uh, to it, societal uh, elements uh, to it. Uh, and you know, the audiences have been kind of the same uh, coming through the decades. And you get somewhere you get the real crossover is uh, of the blues and the country stuff is 1950s when rock and roll uh, develops. Now, you do have significant crossover there. And also it, it, it also, uh, it, you know, sometimes country music and blues music, I mean, it's hard to define what what it is exactly uh, country music blues music these are labels that that record companies put on that specific type of music so that they could sell the music but uh some of the music is, is pretty fluid but uh yeah there's still you know the the uh, 
segregation, I mean, that's gone away, but society, you know, in society, you've still got some issues going on but, uh, uh, with some of that. Anything that I didn't ask you that's important about looking at these two gentlemen and, and talking about uh, the growth of country music along racial lines? Well, and blues, um, for that matter. No, I think you covered covered uh, most of the uh, bases. Uh, again, it's kind of a cliched notion now that music being created in a segregated society, yet there is some interaction between the music and the musicians. I mean, that was kind of the point that I was trying to get across, and that a lot of blues, the themes in blue, early blues music, the same themes in early country music, and uh, Jimmy Rogers especially. Uh, uh, he he, he uh, composed music in kind of a blues style, so he was heavily affected by blues. Uh, hence, if he's the father of country music, that means country music is heavily affected by the blues, too. Ben Wynn will speak at the two Mississippi museums today at noon as part of the museum's History is Lunch series. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.